So we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. I have been given the great honor of continuing in the series, so uh, praise God for that. We'll be in John chapter 2. We're going to get through the first 12 verses. Father, you are King. God, you are sovereign Lord of creation. You are the almighty God. You are the only God, Lord, and we thank you uh, that you've made yourself known to us through your word, Father. You are gracious and powerful and merciful and kind and patient. We thank you that we have come to know all these things through your son, Jesus Christ, that we have uh, come to taste and see that you are so, so good. I thank you for the saints gathered here today, God. I thank you that you have given each of them life, Father, a free gift of life and salvation and grace that is in Christ. And I thank you, Father, that you've brought us near, that we might come and, and sing with one voice and worship and give you praise, Father, and hear your word. And as we do listen today, God, I ask, Father, that you would work mightily in our hearts and our minds, that you would captivate us uh, with the richness of your word and its glory and its great promises, Father. I thank you for every individual in this room, and we thank you for your spirit, God, that you gave it to us, that we might know you and understand spiritual things. And so we ask that you'd speak to us now, Father, for our good and for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today is a pretty famous story that most of you guys probably know, water into wine, right? Most folks who have heard of Jesus maybe twice know about the water into wine story. So this won't be probably any information that is new. But before I start, may I just say to you guys, my brothers and sisters here as a teaching elder, which is just a fancy way of saying it, I am grateful to be a part of a church family that loves Christ. And, uh, and, and not just in the sense that, you know, he's our savior and we love him, obviously, but that we love to make much of Jesus here, not only on Sundays, but always, um, to lift his name up, to proclaim his worth and his grace and his glory. Um, just the more, I, the more I look at what's out there in the church today, particularly in the American church, uh, the more my heart is just grieved uh, by what's coming from the pulpits uh, across the nation. Um, it's a, a crossless and and frankly, almost a Christless Christianity. It's, it's all about me and what God can give me in this life and my success and my victory and my worth. And I am just so awesome. Um, guys, I, I love, I love that I believe we can say together with one voice uh, when we show up on Sunday morning that the last thing I want to hear about in this building is me. I live with me. I see me every day. Every time I walk past a piece of glass, boom. There I am, and uh, I hear the thoughts in my head, I know the intentions of my heart, and I know that there is nothing good in me apart from Christ, that I am sinful, and though you guys may not always see it, my heart is prone toward evil, and it is by the grace of God and his grace alone that I am what I am, amen, that we are what we are, that you are what you are. Praise God for that, and I praise God that I have the privilege and honor of beholding the Lamb of God this morning with you, as John the Baptist told his disciples to do. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we behold him, we are transformed into his likeness. So that is our objective this morning. So the story 
picks up here. The events of uh, chapter 1 and, well, at least the second half of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 all happen within the same week. So this is all just day after day after day. It's something to keep in mind as we move through the text today and through the rest of the book of John. You can just tuck this away for however many years it takes us to get through this book. Just kidding. The coming of Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, is the central event of human history. It's the central event, really, of all history. And we can easily take the magnitude of this event for granted because we, I'm not going to speak for all of you, I don't know, but we, by and large, as far as I know, are not Jews who have spent our entire lives poring over and searching the Old Testament scriptures and its promises and its prophecies and its signs and its symbols and its types and its shadows all the way back to the garden to the very beginning where sin entered the world and the curse came upon the earth when God foretold that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, that a savior would destroy the works of the devil. See, the things that are taking place here in John's gospel account will forever change history. That's why these things were written down. They are the center of God's plan of redemption from eternity past, and they are the beginning of the end of the greatest story that has ever been told. And my friends, we can get so tied up sometimes in the details and doctrines, which are of tremendous importance, of course, yes? Details and doctrines are very important, but from time to time, we can get lost in the trees, so to speak, and we can be so fixated on certain aspects of the text that we forget the forest. We forget to read the Bible as a story, yes? It's not uh, a science book. It's not just a book on how to live properly. It is a story. We forget to read God's word as the creator of the universe telling a story, telling the story. It's really the only story that actually matters, though Lord of the Rings might be a very good story. This is a story that contains ultimate and authoritative truth for all of mankind. Amen. It's a wonderful, rich, and complex, and most importantly, it's a true historical narrative along with poetry and songs and letters and wisdom and prophecy. It's filled with all kinds of characters and drama and sorrow and joy and all, all the things that make up a great story and symbols and themes that are repeated all throughout from beginning to end. And it's within that perspective that we must understand what's going on in the gospel accounts. Not just John, but all of them. As Jesus comes onto the scene... And begins his earthly ministry, and as we'll see in this chapter, manifests his glory. Manifests his glory. Gotta love that. The Old Testament references and symbols are everywhere. And I know we have at least one brother in the house who thinks preachers don't preach Old Testament enough. Let it not be so. Let it not be so. The Old Testament symbols and references, they paint the picture of Christ. They shine the light toward all that Christ would be. They shine the light to all that he would come to do, all that he would come to fulfill, all that he had to be in order to be our perfect 
Savior. This was all foretold over thousands of years of prophecy. For example, the fact that Jesus is our king isn't in full picture if we haven't read of David and the covenant that God made with him, that his son would sit on the throne eternally. The fact that Jesus is our great high priest is nonsensical if we don't have any understanding of the Levitical priesthood and Israel's sacrificial system and so on and so forth. All of these things bring into clarity who Christ is and what he was predestined to do. And so it is for our passage today. Jesus performs a famous miracle, a wondrous miracle that demonstrates his deity, right? He is God in the flesh, his power over creation. He can create something from nothing. It demonstrates his love. He meets the need of someone who is in dire need. But that miracle, this specific miracle, and all the rest of the specific miracles, understood in light of the whole biblical narrative, causes the glory and the light of Christ to shine all the more brighter. That was not proper English. Forgive me. More brighter. That was smooth. (laughs) Usually I'm pretty on point with that stuff. Okay, so I don't know if you guys have met our brother Arturo. He is going to be replacing Pastor Isaac at... uh, Kapia, he's, a, he's an awesome brother. You guys should get to know him when he's around. He always tells me that every sign points to something, right? When, you, when you're driving down the road and you see a stop sign, you're not like, ooh, pretty red, and look at the white letters on it, and you just keep cruising right through, right? The sign is meant to point us to something. When you see slow, it's not just to gaze at the sign and go, slow. It's to, it's to point you to something, right? It's to indicate something. The sign points to the fact that you got to slow down. The stop sign tells you to stop. The yellow light says you better punch it or you ain't going to make it, right? (laughs) Right. So signs point to something. A sign points to something. Every biblical sign in the same way is meant to point us to what? Right. It's meant to point us to him, that we might know him as he is and that we might believe in him. Remember, John wrote this gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If we're reading this with other intentions, we're missing the point here. It's all about believing and trusting in Christ. And so this is a story that you're all probably familiar with, but it's also a story with a lot more going on than meets the eye. So... There's 20 minutes of introduction. So let's, let's stand if you can. If you, if you can't, by all means, don't worry. We're going to read the first 12 verses together and just kind of get the story in its fullness. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Forgive me if it's a little different from what you got in front of you, but you'll be all right. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, 
and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Thank you all. You may be seated. So, it's a short story, 12 verses, but there is so much to unpack here. Even in the very first phrase, this passage already has a sign for us. And that sign is to let us know that something significant is happening here in this story. He says, on the third day. The first four words, on the third day. Now keep in mind, at this point in the narrative, Jesus has not said anything about his crucifixion yet or anything about his resurrection on the third day. And of course, as we know, the New Testament is not yet written because we're, we're going through the accounts of Jesus' life, right? But a reader with an Old Testament understanding would still pick up on this language nonetheless. Just like when we hear the third day, we immediately think of Christ, right? But when an Old Testament scholar, if you will, someone who has been acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures hears this, there's a bell going off, there's a light going off, because there are so many references to significant events taking place on the third day in the Hebrew scriptures, which Jesus said testify to what? To him, right? To him. In the scriptures, all about him. They point to him. Exodus 10 the plague of darkness in Egypt. When did it lift? Third day. Exodus 19, it was on the third day at Mount Sinai that the Lord manifested his presence, right? Thunder, lightning, smoke, cloud atop the mountain. Just a terrifying scene uh, as the Israelites camped at the base of the mountain. We know Jonah, right? This is the only one that Jesus references specifically. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. And perhaps the most notable and maybe even the most symbolic of all, it was on the third day that Abraham took his son of promise, Isaac, up onto the mountain to offer him to the Lord. And God intervenes and he receives Isaac back as if from the dead, we are told. One commentator suggests that in light of these and many more, I think there's like 20 third day references in the Old Testament, that the third day in the scriptures symbolized the theme of death to life, death to life. And no more fitting symbol could be fulfilled in the Savior and what he would come to do. But not yet, not yet. For now we just have another symbol of what is to come when on the third day he would rise from the grave and conquer death and lay his own life down and take it up again, death to life that we may have life in him. But not yet. He has so much more to fulfill here on earth first. So let's take a look at verse 1. So on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So again, remember, we don't have an exhaustive, if you want to call it, inspired commentary on how all this stuff works. There's going to be a little bit of clues within the story. I'm going to speculate a little bit. It's okay if you disagree with me. We'll stick with the main things. But if you remember from Pastor Rob's beautiful map last week, which we're not going to pull up, but just imagine it's there. 
Cana is about 10 miles north of Nazareth, right, where Jesus is from. So they're close together, and they're both just, they're small towns. They're like, uh, I don't even know. If you head up north past Clear Lake where there's towns where there's, you know, less than 500 people, small town. Not a lot of stuff going on. These people have lived there probably for generations. They've been doing the same work. They know each other. They know each other's families, and um, they, they had a... a agricultural community up there. And so there's a wedding, we're told, to which Jesus and his mother are invited, as well as his disciples. Now, it may seem on the surface that, okay, his mother was there, so he got invited, and he got an invitation with a plus 12 on it, and he, you know, brings his guys along. But I don't think that's the case. This could either mean that there is a a mutual family member, right, who's in this wedding, and so they're invited, and Jesus brings his disciples along, Or it could simply be the fact that these people all just know each other because they live in the same region. And weddings were a massive deal at this time in history and in this place in history. Remember, we're dealing with small towns, right? When someone gets married in a small town, word gets around. We won't get into all the minute details of the wedding ceremony because we could literally go all week and I could confuse you guys to death. Uh, But it's important to note that weddings then were vastly different uh, from what we have now. These were huge, huge, huge celebrations. Weddings are just the pinnacle of celebration. It's the most holy and sanctified and, and beautiful and glorious and symbolic relationship that humans have been given between two people. We're told that this is a symbol of Christ and his church, Christ and his bride. So weddings are a big deal. And they would go for days on end. We think that we throw, you know, wild parties, you know, 20 grand, 30 grand, whatever. Mine definitely was not that much. But uh, we, we throw crazy parties and we think that's a celebration. These people got down for almost a week at times, okay? Days and days and days of celebrating this couple and showering them with blessing. And uh, contrary to today's tradition here in our context, it may vary from family to family, But it was ultimately the groom's responsibility to entertain these guests for days at a time. All the responsibility was on the man and and his family by extension. To provide the food, to provide the festivities, to provide the refreshments, which are key, right? It was a big deal. It was a huge cultural responsibility for the groom. He spent most likely the, the last year preparing not only for this celebration, but also preparing a place for his bride to live, right? When we hear, in my father's house, there are many rooms, this is, a, this is a reference to Jewish tradition where the man would go to his family's, you know, living place, and he would build onto his family's house a place for him and his bride to live. Sometimes it's translated mansions, you know, heaven's going to be great, but I don't necessarily believe we're all going to be living in individual mansions like cribs, right? <laughs> this, is, this is not exactly what's being referred to there. Um, but anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there. But now there's a disaster that's about to strike here because wine is absolutely crucial to this gathering, to this celebration. Not only because it's something to drink, but many commentators have pointed out that the water at this time was not run through your municipal purifying systems. And so they would use wine, they would use the fermentation process of wine to drink something that would not make them sick. But if you drink wine and no water, you're gonna get a little sloshy very quickly, right? And you do that for weeks on end, you're probably gonna die. 
So they would mix wine with water. They would dilute the wine so that the wine would purify the water and the water would dilute the wine. If the wine runs out, we are in big trouble because there's literally nothing left to drink, right? Got that? Huge disaster situation. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, okay, it's already done. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And I don't assume she was like, hey, they have no wine. She was probably like sweating bullets, right? They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So this passage, understandably, has been a source of confusion on a handful of different things. What is Jesus talking about? And is he, is he sassing his mom here? And so on and so forth. Like if you just read the text through, it's kind of like, what in the world is going on here? Well, first off, the wine has run out. Okay, this is the absolute worst thing that could happen. This would have been a nightmare for the groom. Not only as a total embarrassment, but such a blunder would have brought shame and question upon him as a man and as a provider. So he's in a vulnerable predicament here. It's urgent situation. Code red, we ain't got no wine, right? So he's on the verge of looking quite unprepared, quite irresponsible in front of a large crowd. Everybody's here as well as in the family of his bride. And Mary, who's apparently serving in some capacity at this celebration, she comes to Jesus, right? Which MacArthur points out was a great to go to him for wisdom. Why? Well, he never had any bad ideas, Really? Nobody? He's a son of God, you know? Hey, Jesus, I have a problem. What do you think I should do? He says, well, he probably never led her astray, right? He's the most wise man to ever live. He's God in the flesh. He's probably like, well, here, I've got an idea for you. So she goes to him, right? She goes to him, and I believe that she not only knows exactly who he is, but I, I, you don't have to, I believe she is asking him to aid miraculously in some way in this situation because of the way that he responds. That's totally my opinion. You're completely free to disagree with me. It doesn't matter. But he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So first off, let me just be clear. Jesus referring to her as woman is not like it sounds to our 21st century American ears like, woman, where is my dinner? Woman, I'm hungry. It's not like that at all. This is a polite response, but it's a more distant response than using the word mother. Some people have said it's like the word ma'am, you know. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Woman, what does this have to do with me? He doesn't use the word mother, which would have been the more intimate way of addressing her. It is Mary who came to Jesus in time of need, as she probably often did at this point, since we believe Joseph has most likely died at this point, his earthly father. And John is showing us that she is no longer simply his earthly mother. Their relationship has now changed forever at this point in the story. Jesus has begun his ministry. John the Baptist, his cousin, has just identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he is now completing the work that the Father has given him to accomplish. And in order to do that, his relationship with his mother has to change. And contrary to a lot of commentators on this text, even though Jesus has not performed miracles up to this point, right? John says this is the first sign that he did. 
So he did not make birds out of clay and summon them to life as a child. I'm sorry. It didn't happen. But even though he has not performed miracles up to this point, I think Mary is in some way asking him for supernatural help here because of what he says next. He says, my hour has not yet come. So we read this and immediately we may be thinking, what does that have to do with the wine situation? She's like, we're out of wine. He's like, my hour has not come. It's like, what? What a weird response. See, the time has not yet come for Jesus to fully reveal himself publicly as God incarnate, at least not at this moment. He's going to do it soon, but he's not yet going to do the very thing for which he would be conspired against and ultimately the things that the Jews would seek to kill him for, right? They said he's making himself equal with who? With God. He makes himself equal with God. The time had not yet come for him to fully reveal himself in this way because the time had not yet come for him to go to the cross. That's what he refers to as his hour, the hour when he would drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And so he isn't going to step in here just yet and perform an open public miracle. And yet, Mary still recognizes his authority and she sees him as the only potential solution to this problem. Because there is no solution to this problem. There's nothing to be done. You can't just make wine like that. You can't just ferment grapes like that. And you can't drink water that's going to make hundreds of people sick. So she recognizes his ability to carry out what is good in his sight, to redeem the situation somehow. And so she entrusts the servants of the feats to him, saying, do whatever he tells you, right? He's not going to lead you astray. He's the son of God. So this is the scene that is set. The wine has run out. There's a horrendous situation about to unfold if something's not done in a hurry. And from here on, it's just continual symbolism. Symbolism, symbolism, symbolism. So if you would, with me, keep your thinking hats on. But if you would take your, your enjoying cap, if you have one still, if you haven't misplaced it, your enjoying cap, and would you please put that on top as well? Rally cap, right? One forward, one backwards. Interacting with God's word is supposed to fill us with awe, right? Like Pastor Rob said, awesome, 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 full of awe at his incomprehensible wisdom. When we sit down to read books, we read them to enjoy them, do we not? Yeah? We read them to enjoy them, to learn, to marvel, to imagine. If we can do that with fallen human authors who we love, how much more as children of the living God reading his very words, his revealed truth. Amen? I'd encourage all of us this morning to give a little more attention to enjoying the captivating story of God's plan of redemption. It brings him so much glory. Searching the story for its rich depth and all the wonders that lie under the surface. Do you need to know all this stuff to be saved? No. But why wouldn't we want to? I promise you, you will be blessed in doing so because you will see more and more of Christ on every single page that you turn. And so the third day was our first symbol, right? Death to life. And now we have the wine. Wine was a symbol, again, Old Testament references over and over, of God's blessing, God's sustenance, and life for his people Israel. 
When they obeyed and trusted him, wine was a symbol of God pouring out his favor, pouring out his abundant provision, and so on. And in the religious climate of the day, as you guys know, where the leaders and the people had become spiritually barren, the wine had run out. The hearts of the Jews had become so hard that they would not even recognize God if they saw him face to face. See what I did there? Remember, people will say, you wouldn't recognize something if it slapped you in the face. Well, they wouldn't recognize God if they saw him face to face, and that's exactly what's about to happen as the God-man, Jesus Christ, comes to his own people and they reject him. They deny him. See, the branches of Israel are being broken off for their unbelief that the Gentiles, that's us mostly, might be grafted into the family of God where Israel has trespassed. See, the Jews, by and large, particularly the leadership, the people at the top, the Pharisees, the religious elites, they were obsessed with appearance, having an appearance of godliness, but internally deceived, self-righteous, blind, corrupt, hypocritical, dead. That just kind of summarizes all of that, dead. They were obsessed with looking clean on the outside, but they were dead on the inside, thinking that they were doing what the Scripture declares is impossible, to be in right standing with God on the basis of works, on the basis of law, which apart from faith in the Savior is worthless, clean on the outside, dead on the inside. And so were we, amen? Can we identify with this collectively? So the wine of God's blessing has, in a sense, run out for them. There is a hardening and a blinding that has come over Israel now that the Messiah has come. And look at verse 6. Now there were six, water, or six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So let's use our imaginations here a little bit. Filling these jars up was a laborious task. Okay, 20 to 30 gallons, okay, decent amount of water, but there's six of them, right? 150 gallons of water with no hose is no joke, right? They didn't just turn the faucet on and stick it in the jar and walk away. They had to do this manually. This is sweating, back-aching labor. If any of you guys have ever bucketed water, it is a nightmare. It's very inefficient, and it's hard. So what are the servants laboring to do. They're laboring to fill up these water jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification, for washings, for ritualistic washings, washing cups and dishes and hands and so on and so forth. Wash, 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 wash. And I believe that this is symbolic of the work that had to be done constantly to keep up appearances, to keep up appearances. Have you guys ever driven by um, one of the, the fundraiser car washes that they do sometimes on like the corner of uh, Lincoln and uh, Jefferson there. Yeah, like by, it's the auto shop right there. Right, so if you ever drive by one of those, it attracts a lot of attention, doesn't it? Everybody who's sitting at the red light is staring over at them to see what's going on. And there's a ton of hooting and hollering and waving and shouting and commotion as people are trying to get people to come in and get their cars all cleaned up, right? And... Uh, there's a lot to be seen. And when it's all done, when it's all done, man, do those cars look nice, yes? When they're pulling out of there, rims are shining, 
There's tires glistening with fresh armor all, fresh polish on the paint. You can see your reflection on them as they drive by. And a nice polished paint job will turn heads, will it not, from time to time? Say, hey, would you look at that? And again, okay, what I'm about to say is an illustration. Please do not take this personally or offensively if this is you. I have been this person, okay? This is not, I'm not looking at anybody. But perhaps as they're pulling out of the parking lot, you come over and you, you sneak a peek in the passenger window, and inside you see a hundred bags of half-eaten fast food. There's French fries in every single compartment, nook and cranny, right? There's papers and receipts everywhere. Old clothes, spilled drink cups, right? Straws, half a cabinet's worth of old Tupperware with old pasta sauce in it, unidentifiable sticky gunk on the seats, wrappers and trash lining the dashboard to where you can't quite see the road all the way. Again, if your car looks like this, I'm not giving you a hard time. I'm just illustrating. One would think Why in the world would you put so much effort into keeping the outside spotless and pristine for everyone to see when the inside, the place where you actually sit every day and spend your time driving, is absolutely filthy? It would, it would, this would seem crazy to us, right? Why, what is going on here? This is like bizarre. It's nasty. Again, I've been there. My car is, is in between these two realities at the moment. There are no french fries. Uh, but this is exactly, my friend, this is exactly what was in the hearts of the Jews of the day. There was a fixation on washing, on making the outside clean, and a complete neglect of the inside. This is the definition of hypocrisy. And Jesus gave his scathing appraisal of the religious leaders of the day in Matthew 23. You guys will probably recognize this. If you want to turn there, go for it. If you're speedy or if you got your phone, I'm going to read from verse 2. He says, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called rabbi by others. And then verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Man, I would not want to hear those words from anybody, let alone God himself. That is a horrible place to be. And the religious folks of the time were laboring to keep the outside clean, washing and washing and washing, rearranging the furniture in a burning house. That is what we're doing when we're trying to rearrange the outside 
when the inside has not been made new. They were trying to carry a load that they could never bear, and they were putting that burden on others as well. Self-righteousness through law-keeping, self-righteousness through works, self-righteousness through appearance. It can't be done. It cannot be done. No one will be justified through works. We know this, right? We know this. But remember, God had promised a new covenant to his people. He is faithful, and he will not leave the world in this wretched state without hope. He promised a new covenant, not like the one that Israel broke, the covenant of law that came through Moses, the new covenant he promised, where God would write his law on the hearts of his people, and they would be his people, and he would be their God, and they would know him. They would know him, and he would forgive them and remember their sin no more. God is about to do something new, and that's what our text is all about this morning. He is going to fulfill his promises in his son. So Jesus tells the servants to fill these water jars, and they fill them to the brim. Right? There's no mistaking. They are full of water. He didn't sneak a little wine in there to try to pull off some hoax. They're filled to the brim with water, and then verse 8. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So the servants, they take some of this water, which miraculously becomes wine, and they see it, and they bring it to the master of the feast. And his job is to make sure that everything is on point. Everything is dialed in. He is the taste tester. He is the head caterer. He's the head waiter. He's well acquainted with food and wine. Okay, this is not Mr. Two Buck Chuck. He is the sommelier of the party. So he knows wine. He knows wine. And he is blown away. Right? We can only imagine this is the best wine that was ever made. He calls the bridegroom over and he tells him, right, contrary to what most people do, you sip the good stuff and then when, when you, you know, you're a little loosey-goosey, you bust out the, you know, I don't know, whatever it is you bust out, the not-so-good stuff. There's a, a deterioration of quality as the evening goes on. You're not going to wait till everyone's, you know, kind of stumbling around to bust out the finest reserve that you've got, Right? Someone comes over for dinner, you feed them the good stuff, they're like, hey, I'm still hungry. You're like, well, uh, got some leftover, you know, whatever, casserole in the fridge, we could heat that up, right? You don't start with that and then finish with the filet. You give them the good stuff first. But he says, contrary to what people do, you have kept the good wine until now. You have saved the best for last. And oh, how the true bridegroom, the Son of God, has saved the best for last. He has saved the best for now. He has saved the best wine for now, right now. See, every single human being born on this earth is born under the weight of the law, born into a state of sinfulness, of rebellion, and enmity toward God, helplessly separated from Him, right? Spiritually dead in sin, unclean on the inside. Jew, Gentile, napkin, Australian. There is no difference. We are all universally guilty before him because we have all broken his law. And we relate to him based on our works, our own righteousness, 
of which we have how much? None. Zero. Nothing to offer. Just guilt and condemnation. All of us, in a sense, are no different from the Jews at the time, apart from Christ. We have our big 30-gallon jars of water for washing the outside. Our rituals. Washing, right? I recycle. I give to charities. I don't judge people. Haven't stolen or murdered. I mow my neighbor's lawn once a month. I adopt dogs from the pound. I drive the speed limit occasionally. I have spiritual experiences when I'm high on drugs. I take care of my family. I pray twice a day. I'm a pretty good person, right? Washing the outside. These are, look at, look at how clean I am. Look at what I've got going on. I've got a steady job. I pay my bills. I'm good to go. I'll be acceptable. But when we are confronted by the perfect law of God, when we're confronted by his holiness and his righteousness and his perfection and his perfect requirements, we are undone. We are condemned. We do not measure up because we have all done countless wicked and evil things in his sight. Like Pastor Rob says, it's not like there's a scale and it's kind of like this. The bad is so bad that you can't even conceive of how bad it is because we don't see ourselves rightly. We don't see ourselves the way that he sees us. We are guilty, and no matter how much polish and turtle wax and armor all we put on the outside, a dead person cannot make himself come alive. We need to be washed from the inside. And this is the very thing that Christ came to do. From the washing with water to the washing with wine. The washing of water could never take away sin. But Jesus came to wash us in his own perfect blood. So that like the blood of the Passover lamb on the post, those who are covered by his blood will be spared. Not because of anything they have done, but because of the blood. He came to bring a better hope than the law. He came to bring something better than relating to God with works through which we now draw near to God with confidence. Amen. He came to usher in a new covenant based on better promises. It's no longer do this and live because you can't do this. You are incapable of doing this. Now it's trust him and live. He has done this. Trust him and live. He came to do what we could never do and what the law could never do. To do what God alone promised and what God alone can do, pouring out his own blood, which he symbolizes with wine, right at the, at the Last Supper with his disciples. Pouring out blessing. Pouring out greater blessing. Pouring out the greatest blessing. The greatest blessing that has ever been given, the blessing for all the nations of the earth, as Abraham was promised that his offspring would be. A blessing to all the nations of the earth. The blood of Christ, and I'm going to quote Hebrews here paraphrasically throughout the rest of this. You don't have to turn there. But the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, now purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purified not through the washing of water or the sacrifice 
of animals or atoning for our own sin, but through the willing sacrifice of the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. Jesus, the true bridegroom, has saved the good wine until now for these last days to give himself. He is the blessing. He is the sustenance. He is the life for his bride, the church. The old wine had run out, but now the cup of blessing for mankind is about to overflow with new wine, with new abundance in him. The one in whom, Paul says, all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. Yes and amen in Christ Jesus. The one awaited and promised the Lamb of God. Israel, like I said, was under a heavy burden. They were under the weight of the law that they could not carry. And so were we, unable to please him, unable to draw near to him, unable to deal with our sin. But Christ came to give rest to the weary and to the burdened. Let me say that again. Christ came to give rest, rest to the weary and burdened. Those who toil and labor helplessly in their own strength, he has come to give rest by perfecting eternally through his sacrifice all who come to him. I'll say that one again. Perfected eternally. Perfected eternally. All who come to him and receive the free gift of grace through faith in him. My friends, are you resting this morning? As you are sitting in your seat right now, are you resting? Do you have rest in him? Have you put your hope and your trust and all of your confidence in Jesus Christ alone that you may know his rest? Or are you laboring? Have you ceased from working to please God? Or are you laboring to please God by your works, by your efforts? Even for those of us who have received this rest, who have received the righteousness of Christ, we so often in our minds relate to God as if it is our works that keep us in his love, as if it is our works, as if we have to keep on working to measure up, keep working to please him, keep working to prove that we are saved, keep working to keep ourselves saved even. We bring ourselves back under the law, the burden, the yoke that he came to set us free from. When we have been set free, we have been set free, we've been given rest. The work is done, my friends. The work is done. And because we are free, listen, because we are free in Christ, we are able to obey and serve him out of love, no longer out of fear. Because of his kindness, we turn from our ways and we turn to him. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It is what he has already done. It's what he has already made us in Christ Jesus I'll do my kids' ministry illustration because I know you guys love this one. God, when I am in Christ, no longer sees my greasy head full of sin and beginning baldness. When I 
put my faith in Christ, the perfection of Jesus Christ now rests upon me so that when God looks at me, he no longer sees my sin, he no longer sees my dead works, but he sees the perfection, the work of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. I am clothed in him. My garments are washed by his blood and I am made perfect eternally through his sacrifice. That is the rest that we have been given. That is good news, amen? I'm going to get choked up. If you are still trusting in yourself, trusting in your own performance, thinking you're going to make it when you have to give an account to him, you will be gravely mistaken and horribly disappointed when that day comes. But there is forgiveness and new life in Christ Jesus. Come to him and he will wash you. Don't try to wash yourself. You can't do it. He will wash you. He will make you clean. And he will give you rest. He has done the work. He is the only one that could do it. He said it is finished. Right? Not I started it. Now you finish it. Right? He didn't say I've done the hard part. Now you do your part. He says it is done. Come to me and I will give you rest. There is one and only one way to escape judgment and receive eternal life and that is through faith in him apart from works so that no one can boast when the day of judgment comes there will only be two groups of people there will be those who are trusting in Christ and there will be those who are trusting in something else it doesn't matter what something else is it is not going to be enough to save you because it is not Jesus Christ amen Only Christ is enough, and he is enough, yes? He is enough. He is sufficient. He is enough to save us. He's enough to keep us. He's enough to sustain us, and he is enough to see us through into eternity with him. He is enough, and he demonstrated clearly and fully that he is enough. This is why John has written these things that we might know. He has demonstrated through his words and his signs and his miracles like this, turning water into wine, and most glorious of all through his resurrection on the third day, laying his own life down and taking his own life up again. We'll close beginning with verse 11. John says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him. I'm going to repeat the purpose statement again, just in case we forgot. That was like an hour ago. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The mighty works and words and miracles that Christ did were not just to show off. In fact, they served a very specific purpose and they met the specific needs of the people at that time and place. They demonstrated his divinity and his character and his love and the fact that he was and is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so John records these things, not that so we might go, wow, cool. Jesus was a, a, you know, just a great moral teacher and he may have had some superpowers, not sure if I'm down with that or not, but that's awesome and that's cool if you believe in that. Live your truth if it works for you, right? If Jesus is working for you, go for it. I got my thing. You got your thing. No. No. 
That is why the claims of Christianity are so offensive to the unregenerate mind because we are taking a stance, we are drawing a line in the sand, and we are saying God has declared this to be truth. He has said there is one way to him, and that is through Jesus Christ. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? It's not just a symbolic metaphor story of how we can be better people. This is a claim of historical fact and reality. It was so we may believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that the testimony of God's word is in fact true, that the testimony of God's word corresponds with reality, that he did in fact rise from the dead, that we might trust in him because he did all that he said he would do. He did all that God said he would do from the very beginning. He did it all. And that in doing so, we would have life and life abundant. Amen? Life abundant. If he did not actually rise from the dead, we are a bunch of fools. This building is full of fools if Christ is not raised and we will die in our sins. Everything that we're doing here is worthless and a waste of time if Christ is not raised. But he did indeed rise. And he dwelt among men and he manifested his glory. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Closing thought. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He performed miracles to display who he was without a shadow of a doubt. And we have record of many. And John says there are countless more that aren't even written down because all the books of the world could not contain the glorious things that Jesus Christ did here on earth. All this that we may believe in him. But guys... We live in a time and a day where trusting Christ and living a simple, quiet life in the local church is seen as just not enough. It's just not good enough. The gathering with the saints and worshiping together and sitting under the teaching of God's word and baptizing and taking the Lord's supper together is just boring and vanilla and it's lame and it's not enough. It's not great enough. God has so much more for you. He has bigger, more grander things for you. Destiny and legacy and greatness and purpose and a thousand other catchphrases that we can get to get people in the building. It's not enough to just trust Christ. It's not enough to just fellowship with the saints and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not enough. Guys, beware my friends, of reliance on the spectacular, reliance on the miraculous to sustain you in your Christian walk. Some of us have seen legit miracles in our day. I know people who have seen things that are, cannot be explained through natural order, right? Genuine miracles. Cancer that disappears overnight. Tumors the size of a softball that just poof, gone. Unexplainable things. But some of us may never in our lives even see a legitimate miracle in the biblical sense. And that is okay. That is okay. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed, Jesus told Thomas. Blessed are those who believe the testimony because it is true. The miraculous is not what we need to sustain us. Can God do miracles? Absolutely yes. Should we pray and ask him to? Absolutely yes. Will he sometimes do them? I believe yes. Some people believe no. I believe yes, he absolutely does and he absolutely will. But it's not the miraculous that will sustain us. It's not the miraculous that will give us strength and endurance and godliness. It is Christ that sustains us through his indwelling spirit, through his word preached and heard, through his people, his church, and through the ordinary means that he has given us day in and day out. Simple, simple. Trust in Christ, being amongst his people, being in fellowship, being in communion with each other. If you are here today and you know that you are a child of the living God, if you have faith in Christ alone for salvation, that, my friends, is truly miraculous. Yes? Miraculous. You have witnessed and been the recipient of a great miracle. The great miracle. You have been raised from death into life. Sinner to saint. Condemned to beloved. Justified. Sanctified. Glorified. As Pastor Rob pointed out last week, the call of Christ is supernatural. It is supernatural. If you are his this morning, it is because he set his love on you, and he, the bridegroom, laid his life down for his bride, and he gives life to whom he wills. The miracles he did were to point us not to the miracles, but to him, to him, that we might know the greatest miracle, rebirth, regeneration, death to glorious life. And we know there were so many who saw his miracles and did not believe, right? Many saw miracles and didn't believe. You know the story of Lazarus and the rich man? He says, let me go back and warn my brothers. He says, no, 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 no. Even if they see someone rise from the dead, they will not believe. If they didn't believe the word of God, if they did not believe Moses, they're not going to believe you. Now, we don't know if the servants of this wedding believed in him or not, the guys who saw the, wine, or sorry, saw the water become wine. We don't know. But we know that his miracle bolstered the faith of his disciples, yes? It says he manifested his glory and they believed in him. But it is not miracles alone that bring forth faith. It is the gracious gift of God in Christ Jesus, the sovereign, deliberate, undeserved love of God. Those who saw and did not believe did not believe because they were not his sheep. His sheep hear his voice, and he knows us, and we follow him, and he gives us eternal life, and we will never perish, and no one can snatch us out of his hand. Our bridegroom has redeemed us just as he redeemed this wedding situation, right? He is preparing a place for us as the bridegroom prepares a home for his bride, and he is coming back to claim us in glory. And we will join him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'll read from Revelation for us as we close. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Amen? Wow. Thunderous applause. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your glorious word that you have exalted. We thank you for your son that you have exalted, God. We thank you uh, for the wondrous story of redemption that you've given us, that it was your plan from eternity past that the Christ would suffer on our behalf and that he would rise from the dead on the third day, that he would proclaim victory over death and over sin and over the devil, and that through simply trusting in him, that we would have life and life eternal and life abundant, that we would know life, that we would know truth, that we would know peace and freedom and joy and security. God, I thank you that you have accomplished all for us on our behalf, that the work is done, that there is nothing left to do but trust you to follow Jesus Christ. I thank you for my brothers and sisters, for the saints, God, the people that you have made your own, the miraculous rebirth that you have done in our lives, God, that we now know you and we see you and we love you because you first loved us. We give you all the glory because, Father, we have nothing to offer. We had nothing to offer and you died, Christ, while we were still dead in our sins. You demonstrated your love. We thank you for the miraculous things that you did that we might know that you are the Son of God, that we might believe in you, that we might have life in your name, and today we rejoice that that life has been given to us in you. Please encourage us, Lord, as we leave this place. Help us to know the rest of Jesus Christ. Help us to know our position in you, that we are made perfect, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.